excited to welcome back on the program the one and the only Andrew Dembina. Andrew, it's so lovely to speak to you after, after I think, a six-months uh, break, sort of. Yeah, yeah. Hello there, Noreen. I know it's amazing, isn't it? Half a year has just flashed by. Ex- and, uh, and one more earthling granted to you during that time, correct? That's right. Um, I, I had a little baby boy, and, and he's so cute. Three months now. and um, uh, I saw a picture or two of that young man, and uh, he looks, he's got an amazing expression on his face that almost looks like a kind of the wisdom that you would not expect from someone of that age. It looks like he kind of really knows what's going on every time I've seen him looking towards the... Uh, the camera or elsewhere but in a photo thank anyway. you for saying that andrew it's true he's yeah. got one of those like really wise face yeah I, I mean his name is his name is niall but i feel like he looks like an alistair you know a very wise old man alistair what scottish a, Scot- a wee scottish lad <laughs> well he, he is <laughs> yeah. a quarter scottish <laughs> Well, there you go. Exactly. There we go. Well, what have you? I'm really excited to talk to you because it, it's a lunchtime program. So you know, mm-hmm. talking about food is really a passion of mine. Um, right. uh, maybe not as much as Sadia, because Sadia is a real foodie. Um, more she does so, like it. She does. She sure does. Um, and so I feel like I feel like with a lunchtime program, we we definitely need to talk about food. And today mm. you've got some goodies for our listeners. I do. Um, I've got nothing from Hong Kong today because they're broader issues, things that I've noticed in the last week or so in magazines that have online editions. Um, one of them that really uh, sprang to, uh, to mind as a curiosity that I thought the listeners might be interested in, as well as your good self, Noreen, is what is the, and I heard you bigging this up earlier, the star or the champion food that is served in American theme parks. Um, I heard you call that out at the beginning of the program. I don't know uh, if you had any any responses or what people would think, but if I hadn't, I, I, truth be told, listeners, I've already let Noreen in on the big secret of this article but that was I, written by the... Yeah. Uh, but I wouldn't have guessed the, the the said food. I won't give it away. I would no. have I would have guessed pizza, for example, at oh, a theme park. I would have gone hamburger all oh. day long. Oh yeah, hamburger. Yeah. Okay. I would have guessed pizza because who doesn't like pizza? Mm-hmm. Well, that so that would be a great one actually. I hadn't thought of that. But sure, very American. Sure. Yeah, especially New York end of the country you know they they think that there's better than that in italy and also hot dogs of course could have been one you know oh, it's yeah. become and, and also you think about any sporting event the hong kong sevens when it's on or whatever it's normally burgers and hot dogs that are flying it's around meat isn't pies it? in hong kong meat pies yeah. oh yeah yeah that's quite an aussie thing though isn't it, it? it is but they do yeah yeah and brit truth Truth be told, really. Yeah, but, I um, mean, what would be a Hong Kong? I feel like siu mai or fish balls. Yeah. those are sort of well, good, um, good food. To- <laughs> yeah, no, you're, you're you're so right. I mean, you've been to Hong Kong Disneyland, right? <laughs> yes. And you think about what or, or Ocean Park. What are the foods that are popular there? And there are some. Some of them have sort of. Uh, supposed street stalls. They're supposed to look like, you know, street vendors in those places. Of course, Disneyland is a, an American imprint, but in Hong Kong. But there are um, Chinese restaurants there. And I remember having different meals when my son was very young. Um, some of them would be, uh, you know, burgers of one kind or another in both places. And others would have 
they've you know dim sum sumai um and uh you could get fish balls or the kind of rubbery sumai that you can get uh, around town <laughs> <laughs> you know the real low quality coloured stuff which um you know which is all basically the same minced um whatever it's made fish, from but yeah. in different colours um, and um, yeah, uh, I, I would say those those would be ubiquitous. Uh, something a bit more substantial, though. If you think about pizza, something that's hot, what would you go for? That's kind of more than just a a one bite, like fishball or sumai. What what else would it be in Hong Kong? Oh wow, uh, chicken wings is is kind of iconic. Yeah. But I always find yeah. it a bit sort of um, uh, it's too fidgety to eat. I feel like mm. if you go to a theme park. Um, true. True. Maybe a leg would be a bit better because you've got kind of that central bone. Sorry for the non-carnivores listening, um, but um, it's you know that, that you can kind of gnaw around it. And yeah. it's, uh, but but whereas with the double-boned wing, you've got to kind of get into the uh, the cranny and the nook that goes between the two bones. Said so eloquently. Yeah, that, that's right. <laughs> I wish that, yeah. I, I feel bad because I'm sure we've got vegan listeners uh, as I know. well. Let's stop yeah, there. Exactly. Well, we'll Let's stop, stop there, there for a moment. Yes. But before I tell you that the answer to the question, what is the champion food of all American theme parks? It, the listeners may have guessed it by now because we've mentioned burgers, hot dogs, pizzas, but we haven't mentioned before this very moment fried chicken. And that is the answer. And uh, uh, according to The Eater magazine, which is a fabulous magazine, if you don't know it, um, anybody um, should, should, who's interested in food, it's not only American-based food themes, but uh, global ones too. Although it is a bit US-centric as it's based there. This is where this excellent and interesting feature came from, where it talks about the fact that theme parks have really since their earliest days, including the country's oldest Disneyland, which is uh, nearly 70 years old in California, has always put the fried chicken as its kind of proffered first dish, if you like. So the, the Disneyland that I just mentioned has a platter, which is just under 20 US dollars. And so do a number of other theme parks in the country where you get various cuts um, a fried chicken with some uh, either chips, French fries, or um, salads, or different side dishes. But it, but it has become the staple or the most popular dish for sure in in American theme parks. And going back, I want to just go back to um, some of the earlier ones, along with the um, very early. Disney, but also there's a place in California called Buena Park, and that park had a very innocent-sounding theme park that started off originally from a farm that grew berries. It was called uh, Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Knott's Farm, and it, uh, Mrs. Knott's Berry Farm actually, and that and it grew berries, which are quite unique to America actually. I had to look these up because I'm not so familiar. With American berries, I've got to say. Do you know what a boysenberry is, Noreen, for example? Oh, no idea. No, nor did I. But when well, I what's it called again? It, boysenberry. A boysen. A boysenberry. So it, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a really, it's a strange name. You for sure a it's not poisonberry? Well, I hope not, because they're making pies out of the stuff. It looks like <laughs> an overgrown raspberry, an elongated one. But what it is, it's a U.S. <sighs> fruit that's been crossed. Um, using European raspberry, European blackberry. So those two, for, for those who don't know, have little round 
um, segment that form up, form the whole fruit, which is a little bit smaller than a strawberry. And then it's got an American dewberry, which is like a mini raspberry, which is about half the size of a classic raspberry, and a loganberry, which is another type of berry. All of these are the segmented berries that look like raspberries or um, blackberries, if you know them, listeners. So they make a pie that is made from that, which is also as popular as their fried chicken. But it's just something that's specific to that restaurant which opened its doors in 1920 but its fried chicken got more acclaim than those pies with the fruit that i wasn't familiar with until today um i think blue blueberry pie is a, is a is a common pie in america it's funny in other countries you spent time in the uk didn't you noreen i did indeed well, I mean, I mean, fruit pies there. I never heard of a blackberry pie or raspberry pie in the UK. They may be made, but I don't. They're certainly not popular. No, just um, apple ever... pie or yeah, just yeah. Or, or, I don't know. What what other pies do you get in <laughs> in the UK? I must say, well, steak oh, oh, and oh. kidney pie. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, you know? oh, yeah, when I think yeah, of pie, yeah, but... I think of a sweet mm. thing. But in the UK, it's of it's sometimes savoury. <laughs> Yeah, it is chicken and mushroom, that kind of thing. <laughs> but it's, but it's, but it's no. But I, I guess my mum and my grandparents used to make, uh, and this as a kid was not my favourite. But they made plum pies because they grew oh. plums and they wanted to make pies out of the fruit that we grew in our garden sometimes. And so uh, plums, I don't mind when they go ripe. But as a child, uh, if my mum had not gone too crazy with the sugar. Because as an adult palate, they, my parents would like them a little bit tart, you know, not so sweet. But, uh, but, but as a kid, those plum pies were not hitting the spot. Did you ever try one of those? No, not really. You didn't, you didn't miss much, no, <laughs> to tell you the truth. But, uh, so the, uh, the Knott family farm, which is still a, um, a, a crowd puller in California, is mostly a crowd puller for its fried chicken and boysenberry pies. And it serves up uh, 4,000 chicken dinners every Sunday in the States, which is, uh, which, is, which is quite a lot for a small sort of farm restaurant that started off in the Knott family's own dining room. And then they had to make a restaurant next to it because it was so the fried chicken became so popular. And there have been writers in the U.S. that have talked about how popular the dish of uh, of fried chicken is both in theme parks and in restaurants in the country. Uh, one theme park expert and journalist called Carl Weisel, who's written extensively about Knott's Berry Farm and Disneyland for their food, says, uh, and, and, and that's Carlisle, uh, Carlisle is a female. She goes, um, it's just great to eat fried chicken, whether it's high quality or not, because a bit like pizza, one that you mentioned, Noreen, in the sense that if it's not a great pizza or fried chicken, it's still great because everyone likes fried chicken. There you go. That's uh, that's certainly not a uh, that, that's not really an academic writing, is it? I was going to say uh, profound. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And more than a century after the founding of Knott's Berry Farm and the uh, opening of Disneyland 70 years ago, fried chicken by by uh, numbers of surveys of dishes have been found to be the most popular worldwide. But it's not only those. I sent Noreen a photo earlier on 
today a few photos which I noticed you put up on Facebook, Noreen, yes? Exactly, so that our listeners, because I feel bad. A lot of the times when we when we chat yeah. about things, it's they don't see it, so it's nice exactly. to have on Facebook. They've got the chance now, haven't they? Is that, is that, is that Noreen Mir on RTHK Radio 3, by any chance? Correct, correct. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, one of the pictures that I've sent is a platter that looks really vintage, and it is. It dates back to the 1980s, and it's from a theme park in America called Dollywood. And Noreen, can you guess who founded that theme park in America? Dolly Dollywood. Parton. Yes. Is it really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. She, she made her own theme park, but it wasn't <laughs> just her own country and Western memorabilia. It was also about American culture in, ten, in, in Tennessee and in the heartlands of America and in the kind of more rural parts of the country. And in that restaurant, that's also the most popular dish, and they describe it as battered and fried yard bird. Kind of, when, you, when you're that graphic, it might even put off a carnivore there, a battered and fried yard bird. <laughs> I know. If you it's not that very appetising to order that. I'll have <laughs> no, no. two of those, please. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, can you imagine with the children, if they're old enough to kind of get it and be a bit cringy? Uh, yeah. But, yeah, the, um, the nostalgia and the buildings in American amusement parks really do reflect what some people have noted is rooted in a time when Americana really meant white America. And that is what a chef and writer called Amethyst Ganaway has written um, on the subject of uh, the popularity of fried chicken in the country. She says that fried chicken is a dish that is so beloved by white folk as a piece of Americana, but that they think it dates back to the grandparents' time because they may have made it. But in fact, when this... this uh, this writer has noted that originally it was brought to the country by the African-American black community and uh, who passed on recipes uh, when they were working in the homes of uh, white families or they could be also um, friends in more kind of working class communities because the, uh, the black community then was mostly working either as slaves or at later times paid domestic helpers mm. that they would interchange recipes between each other but it's kind of got this notion among some communities that it that it does come from white origins but it doesn't and one theory from her is that the roots are possibly in a Sengalese chicken which is called chicken yassa and that's not deep fried actually that is a stewed or sauteed chicken dish that originally comes from Sengal and um, uh, and it's pieces of meat that sometimes have a sauce in them but, or sometimes can be more crispy with a with a light batter on them so mm. it's kind of interesting that the that the that the big sort of popular dish in theme parks has its origins from the immigrant um, uh, you know black slave community there was a uh, a scene in in a film in 1915 uh, that was made in the US, and it's a very controversial film because it's pretty much labelled as racist these days, which was called The Birth of a Nation. And that film shows actors who are playing a hypothetical situation where 
some of the black community what would happen if they were elected as officials in a town or city. And one of them is eating uh, fried chicken that is described critically by someone else, a, 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 a Caucasian person in the film, as eating fried chicken ostentatiously. So mm. it was seen in somewhat derogatory terms before the World War uh, wars happened. But after World War II and there was red meat rationing, chicken became a popular and more available protein in the US and the whole mindset changed after World War II because uh, it, was a, it was an available food stuff and it was one of the few meats that was easy to rear chickens mm. and that African Americans had also served in World War II and they'd served as cooks among, uh, as well as soldiers and um, they had prepared fried chicken that was popular in the armed forces and that also, that wasn't the only reason it became popular in the community outside of the military. But uh, as I say, it was a way of cooking chicken as one of the few proteins that was around. And that was around the time after World War II and the popularity of chicken and fried chicken that a certain Colonel Harland Saunders uh, franchised his recipe. And you know, the rest is history, Nori. <laughs> <laughs> KFC launched for the first time in 1952. Wow, I'm looking at the clock here and I'm noticing that my first of three segments has uh, has gone on a bit, hasn't it, Marie? Just, just a little <laughs> bit. We've got three minutes before the 2.30 news. Uh, what do you want to do yeah. with the other two? Do you want to sort of skim through it or, or do you want to sort of continue well, a little bit after the news? I, I do I have a music... I continue, but I, I, I'm still not sure I'm going to get through them all because <laughs> I, I've... Um, yeah, I, I do have a music feature um, at, at the end, but um, I, can, I can push it sort of towards the end of the program. I'm sure the listeners will get much more enjoyment hearing about food. Um, so why don't uh, you, we sort of continue? And when it's time to break for the news, we'll break for the news and we'll come back to the topic. Okay, I think yes. we sure, sure, I'll do that. But it's uh, I think we're only going to get to the end of this deep fried chicken saga. But I'll, continue, I'll, I'll just I'll just continue for a little bit further. Um, three years after Disneyland opened, a restaurant called Paul Bunyan's Cook Shanty opened, that's a bit of a name, isn't it? Yeah. Opened in another popular touristy part of America called uh, Wisconsin Dells, which is, uh, which is nuzzled in between a load of water, water parks in parks. It's, it's called the water park capital of the world that attracts more than four million tourists just for the water parks per year. And no prizes for guessing, as we've been on this theme, that the most popular dish out of all of those theme parks, you guessed it, Noreen. Disney. Fried chicken. Oh, sorry. Oh, right. Oh, right. <laughs> I thought you were talking about oh, theme parks. Oh, no, no. Just, a, just a, the, the, those, those water parks, like all of the others that we've mentioned, that it's always the top dish is... Fried chicken. Um, uh, fried chicken. I yeah, can't believe exactly. it. Would would you have placed it as fried chicken? I just thought it no, would be never. quite fidgety to eat. But given the yeah. history and the connection that Americans have with fried chicken, I, I can sort of see why. Exactly. If, yeah, if you're kind exactly. of a... Yeah. Well, I I, I think, um, you know, just to, to, to sum up then, two words, fried chicken. <laughs> that, 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 that's it. I mean, I'm not going to go further into some of those other um, theme parks because it's, it's pretty much the same news from all of them. So they, uh, and as I say, some of them are happy to pay for an adult portion of. Uh, I guess it's not that much. It's it's a, it's a couple of cents under twenty US dollars, which is, uh, I suppose, 160. Hong Kong dollars for a meal in a theme park, and you certainly wouldn't pay less for a main course 
Hong Kong in a theme park. So I guess that's uh, that's that's not bad value. It's not it's not that they're doing it for a cheap meal though. They're actually enjoying it, as I said. Well, I know that we're running out of time here. I will just quickly trail what the other two elements are going to be. One of them is about cocktails with a conscience, and the other one is how to keep your kitchen cupboards in good order. Ooh, I like the little cliffhanger you've given us. All right, well, we'll continue (laughs) with more Tuesday chat with Andrew Dambina after the 2.30 news. Let's continue with our Tuesday segment with Andrew Dambina. Andrew, you gave us a wonderful, wonderful cliffhanger uh, earlier. I did, I did. Which one are you going to talk about now? I think so. I want to mention that we hear non-stop in the world of food and drink as well as practically everything else. It was on Backchat this morning about paying more for plastic bats, uh, bags rather on, on, on Radio 3 to, to uh, you know, be conscious of what we're throwing away and reusing what we can and having a, a lesser carbon footprint. So I was, I was interested to see that one hospitality group, an international one, has just kind of opened... Uh, or launch what it calls a cocktails with conscience um, idea. And, I mean, I've received press releases and information for years on, on you know, the latest promotion. This is not where this came from, though. This is something that I read elsewhere. But, but I'm just saying that it is very much... One can be cynical sometimes about so-called greenwashing, right, for... Um, to make a company uh, look like it's uh, caring for something that is on trend at the moment. But I think this one looks like it has a bit more depth to it, to be honest, because I've, I've read up on it quite a bit before talking about it today. Uh, it, it refers to a group that's, uh, or a brand that's called Fairmont Hotels and Resorts. They're part of one of the world's biggest hotel groups, which is probably the only one, the biggest one coming out of France, which is Accor. Mm. Um, it's a, a big group. Uh, but they were ahead of the game. When I used to do a lot of travel writing, this is why I know that their, that their interest in sustainable parts of their practice goes back further than many others that, uh, that I started receiving and hearing and uh, researching information on that came later. Uh, they, they were really uh, one of the pioneers in the early 1990s, to be honest, even publishing at that time in the early 1990s a groundbreaking guide, really, called a Green Partnership Guide. And that's for a hotel group that has hotels around the world trying to um, procure things more locally in their, in their different operations around the world and to work in more sustainable ways and less wasteful ways. Does it remind you of an old weekend morning programme that we co-produced and presented, Noreen? You are reading my mind. When Andrew and <laughs> yeah. I, just very quickly, when Andrew and I first started at RTHK, we hosted a, a weekly uh, Saturday morning programme called Greener Paths. And we did. Yes. And that, that, that was in the noughties, and uh, already the, uh, the, the hotel group with International Hotels was trying to think uh, in the early 90s about how to, you know, do things in a more responsible way, which we take for granted today, or at least we hear about it all the time, don't we? Um, so it's no surprise then that this this, this arguably oldest uh, hospitality group for getting involved in the whole area of uh, ecologically-minded practice, Fairmont, launched a sustainable, um, no-waste approach for cocktails served in its bars and lounges. And the way that it's trying to do it across the board, mostly, is by having, including in city places, and I did once for the Tuesday segment interview a 
uh, a, a hotel chef that was in charge of a rooftop garden in uh, Causeway in a Causeway Bay hotel, which um, here in Hong Kong, which is one of very few. I wish there were more in Hong Kong that would do this, grow their own produce when they can. It's more than a challenge, as the long weekend um, T8 proved, which went on for a very long time. Um, it would be very, very hard to keep those, wouldn't it, in good condition? Anyone, anyone with a balcony or rooftop garden knows that, 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 um, that, that um, you know, you could, you're a brave person if you put up a bit of trellis for plants to climb up in this part of the world, because typhoons do rip through the place. So, it's, um, but h- however, the, um, the Fairmont have introduced a lot of interesting cocktails from Seoul, the M29 bar, which is on the 29th floor, one of, one of those kind of lovely panoramic vista skyline type of places that Hong Kong has many of too. And its head barman there um, reuses or repurposes the rinds of fruits and dehydrated ingredients, things that have got a bit too dry through oven uh, roasting or so on. He will try and incorporate them into the bar and so there's a lot of to and fro between this bar manager at the M29 bar and the kitchen to find what will work. And he's constantly experimenting. And he has found a number of cocktails that work. And I'm just going to go through a, a couple of others. Um, this, this, this group, which may not be that well known to many of you listeners, the Accor group, uh, but as it happens, a lot of hotel groups will either own or manage hotels and they, you know these contracts change all the time as part of the world of, uh, of of hospitality business so one of the most famous hotels in london is, is the savoy which is in the strand in the center of london and fairmont manages this as well and that hotel's bar the beaufort bar has recently collaborated with something called nadar gin which is produced in scotland and it is the world's first climate positive gin that means that it is um, actually putting more into the um, the world's um, positive production of uh, of oxygen than taking away um, uh, or, or producing carbon and creating carbon dioxide and the reason it does that is nadar gin is made with dried peas and peas require zero fertilizer to grow there's nothing. They actually are very easy to grow, and they uh, and, they, and it's fertilizer that often gives um, uh, food stuff a carbon uh, footprint because fertilizer has to travel from A to B, whether it's on the back of lorries or whether it goes further um, by cargo ship or other or other means, or if it's chemical fertilizer that also can be even air freighted in for elements of fertilizer. So that's interesting. A new cocktail that they're serving there is using that gin from Scotland uh, plus some sustainable seasonal ingredients that are grown around the London area. And every time that someone buys a certain cocktail that's called Flora from this bar, a tree, a whole tree or a sapling of a tree, is planted in the Savoy's own um, forest area in Borneo, um, which it bought to to put back trees into into the rainforest. Yeah, it's great. Um, uh, I'll just mention a couple of others. Um, there's um, in Singapore, there's um, in, the, in the heart of the city, one of the Fairmont uh, hotels there has a bar which is uh, called Antidote and it uses the property's um, aquaponics farm. And aquaponics 
which uh, I think we may have touched on a long time ago. It's a very much an experimental area. It combines aquaculture, so that's the growing of edible fish and other aquatic life, which can also be, um, if they're saltwater fish, it can be seaweed, but things that can be consumed um, with growing plants, without without soil so obviously if it's plants it's going to be fresh water we fish, had an aquaponics setup at home before ah did you really yeah but we didn't we didn't really eat the fish um so to speak because they were no. baby fish um yeah. but but yeah we basically use the 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 fish poo as the fertilizer yeah. for the right. for the plants it was a very yeah, small yeah. scale one yeah it works really well yeah yeah, yeah that's yeah that's, oh, that's interesting didn't know you tried that yeah, sure, yeah. sure. It also so, the only the yeah. only downside to it is it draws a lot of mosquitoes. <laughs> that's oh, not good. Yeah, actually, I should yeah. imagine it would because if the if it, it depends how still the water is. Yeah, I mean, I, I I know from having a rooftop garden that after days of rain, the mosquitoes appear and we have to kind of drain pots a bit more. It's um yeah that. That's, but they were coming indoors as well, yeah? yeah exactly. It was an indoor system. Mm. I mean, I'm, I'm talking about a really small fish tank, about yeah. like 30 centimetres. So it was a very small right. scale one. But, yeah. um, sounds, sounds a good experiment, though. Yes, yeah. yes. That's, yeah. that's the perks yeah. of, of, yes, of having a, a scientist husband who wants to oh, experiment yeah, yeah. On, on all sorts of things. Perks of having a scientist husband and also a good one to keep the children quiet and entertained. <laughs> exactly. <hopefully>. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Well, just uh, the, the the that that hotel in in Singapore at their bar, they um, they would use some of their grown herbs from their aquaponics um, farm uh, or setup, and they would um, uh, they they had this one particular cocktail, and there's a picture of it on your Facebook or the components of it, which is using a gin and what they have as a homemade power juice, which is from pulverized rinds of limes and other fruits plus um, using uh, some of the herbs and botanicals that they grow in their aquaponics farm, which is a great idea. I won't go through um, the rest because otherwise we're just sort of, you know, seeing what they do. But basically the highlights are that the other hotels in this group have their own honeybees. There's one, I mean, you know, when you've got the space, well, one of them is a resort that they have in Hawaii, which uh, where they have... Uh, uh, for on-site hives, so a lot of their cocktails are using the, ha the honey as a sweetener from their their own honeybees that they have on site. And in Vancouver, another one that grows a hotel that grows its own herbs uses rosemary, savory, um, yeah, savory herbs used in cocktails has become quite popular with uh, with gin-based cocktails in, in the, you know, getting a savoury edge to them. So they're doing a bit of that there. And I, I, won't, I won't mention, there's a couple of others, I won't mention the rest, but basically that, I think, is something to be applauded. And I think that it would be great if we saw more hotel, restaurant and bar groups um, globally and also in Hong Kong when they're, you know, operating normally that are able to bring in that kind of practice to... Um, because I think that it's not virtue signalling, but someone who goes to a bar might actually make a choice because they like the ethics of the way it's operating in ways like that. Exactly. Well, Andrew, we'll leave it there for now. But thank you so much for joining us this afternoon and thank you for your sharing. Uh, lots of interesting stuff and I look forward to more chats with you uh, next week on Tuesday. Thank you so much for your time. Sure. Thanks a lot, Marie. Good Bye to speak to you again.